Hey you, welcome to Evolve, a show to help you become a hero and solve the world's greatest challenges. I'm your host, Brandon Stover, founder of Plato University, and I interview social innovators, entrepreneurs, and thinkers about the global problems we face and the solutions that they have created to solve them. Today's challenge, health and well-being. Our guest is Dr. Yale Joffe, founder and chief science officer of 3X4 Genetics, which is bringing the future of personalized healthcare by making use of the power of your unique genetics. This digital health company is pioneering the application of genomics to improve human health and sports performance by giving people access to more personalized DNA data-driven recommendations for fitness, food, supplements, and lifestyle. Pioneering in the field and even cobbling together her own PhD, Yale became a world-renowned scientist in the rapidly evolving discipline of nutrigenomics. She has over 20 years of experience in nutrition, genetics, sound research, clinical practice, and scientific integrity. She's a highly sought-after speaker, has co-authored two books, including It's Not Just Your Genes and Genes to Plate, and has been published in multiple peer-reviewed scientific journals. She has also trained hundreds of healthcare practitioners globally in nutrigenomics as a course creator and an adjunct professor. And today, Yale is going to share how we can use genetics to help everyone, everywhere, personalize every health decision they have, addressing root causes, not just patching symptoms. So I know that you're really passionate about cold water swimming. And so I'd like to start there and learn how you got into it and why you keep going back to it. And if we if we talk about cold water, we might never ever talk about genetics. So <laughs> thanks for asking me that question because I love talking about cold water. So I the the reason I got into to swimming in the first place is because I used to be a runner, and like most runners, we hurt ourselves, and I hurt my back, and they said you'll never run again. So I turned to swimming for rehab, mm. as most of us do, and and really loved it. I always loved swimming. And then did my first kind of ocean event, very small. It was like a mile. Well, in those days, like a mile felt like the world to me, almost felt like I was drowned. But but something, yeah, just something connected with me. And I just loved being in the ocean for like a long time. And I loved kind of going back into the ocean all the time. And, and then I moved to Cape Town. Now, I'm South African, um, for those that don't know. And the ocean is extremely cold in mm. Cape Town. We have two oceans, Atlantic and, and Indian, but I lived on the Atlantic side, which is really cold, but it's really good because the sharks prefer the warm water. They, they go swim on the other side of the, of, of the continent. Okay. And so I had been swimming in the swimming pool for quite some time with a, kind of a, a few forays into the ocean. And I, I moved back to Cape Town and there's a huge open water swimming community there and mm. particularly a cold water swimming community. And I just, I got myself a wetsuit made, as we all do, and went and joined them. And even with the wetsuit, I thought the water was extremely cold. <laughs> and for the first couple of months, I used to rock up in my wetsuit and the thrill of the, the ocean and the waves and the tides and the camaraderie of the other swimmers in itself was just completely addictive. But one day someone said to me, you know, why don't you try to take off your wetsuit? And I was like, quite horrified, but essentially <laughs> I was like, I was surrounded by all these people swimming without wetsuits and thinking like, well, if they can do it, you know, I'm missing something. So that's how I got in. And I, I took off my wetsuit for like 10 minutes and then and then something happened. And 
it's been, gosh, now seven, eight, seven years or something that I've been wow. swimming cold water. And it becomes more and more addictive. So what happens is you, your body adapts to a degree that you can stay longer to cold water. But the addiction grows. And, and it is pure addiction. There's no doubt about it. And, and I think after a couple of years of swimming in the ocean in the cold, you start appreciating what it's doing for you. Mm. And you start realizing that you're surrounded by individuals who are seeking out and, and there's some people, and, and cold water immersion is amazing, whether it's a cold shower or a cold plunge, but cold water in the, in the ocean takes it to a, a whole nother level, right? Because you're very humbled by nature and you're right. very humbled by the ocean. So every time I step into the ocean, I'm no longer like this entrepreneur, hardworking, or even the mom, like all of that falls away. And there's, there's like this deep, humility and survival element of being in in a cold ocean and so i think you know we we know now there's lots of research that cold water um switches on your vagus nerve so it's interesting i have never been able to meditate and even though i work in the space of health meditation has been something that i've tried on and off for like 20 years and it's just been elusive to me just doesn't draw me in no matter which way i try it and I discovered that the ocean was giving me what meditation would have given me. Amazing. And that and that this was my version, you know. And we know now from the science that that's exactly what happens, actually. That what cold water immersion does for your body is exactly what meditation does, which is kind of get you away from the fight or flight. You know, it, it switches your, your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And that plus that that being so immersed in nature that you are so humbled and frightened and excited is what got me started. Well, I would like to use that as a little bit of a segue. And if you could explain to our listeners who are unfamiliar with genetics and epigenetics, how an external stimuli like cold water swimming turns on and off genes in our body, which ultimately affects our health. Okay, great. That is a perfect segue. Before I talk about epigenetics, I prefer, I'm going to talk about genetics because epigenetics is above genetics. So genetics is about code. So we're, we're, we have this DNA sequence code, which is essentially uh, um, four letters, A, um, A, G, C, T, exactly like we have a language of English, which has 26 letters. And these letters really make words. And mm. these words are, are called codons, which make amino acids, which make proteins. And they really drive our body. They're like the engine of our body, this blueprint-making proteins. But at 0.1% of this code, we differ from each other. So at 99.9% the same, but at 0.1%, our code is different. Hmm. I call them I call them spelling changes. You can <laughs> call them gene variants. You can call them polymorphisms. I just don't call them mutations because they're not a negative thing. They're evolutionary, right? They're where we come from. So. But what these spelling changes do is determine why we're different from each other and how we respond to the world around us. So because these spelling changes, these changes in our code, are coding for different, changing the way our proteins are made, it changes the way we interact with nutrition, the food we eat, the supplements we take, the exercise we do. But even more than that, it changes the way we experience stress or trauma or the weather and even changes the way we experience relationships. So when we talk about things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, it's all about spelling change, mm. right? So 
So if we can understand these gene variants, these spelling changes in our body and what we inherited, it gives us a deep insight into who we are in the world and how we respond to the world around us. So for me, that's always the the first layer that's super important, which is know know thyself, right? Self-knowledge. Yeah. The word is insight. So know thyself, why, why you respond to the world around you. And then you could start curating your world to really match your genetic profile. And, and so that is the, the first half of the equation. And for the first 15 years of my career, I only dealt in that half of the equation, which was really half. And then I discovered epigenetics. So epigenetics is, is epi meaning above genetics. It means everything around genetics that does not have to do with code. So in, in epigenetics, it doesn't change the sequence. It doesn't change your blueprint. It doesn't change a C for a G. That is not what we're talking about. But what it does do is exactly what you said, which is change the way our genes switch on and switch off. Now, to make the protein that I spoke about in the first part, a gene needs to switch on. It kind of unravels from the chromosome. It's really mm. beautiful. It, it opens itself up kind of lays itself out. And when, it, when a, a gene opens, it makes the protein and the protein goes on to be an enzyme or a hormone or a brain message. And when it's done making its protein, it wraps itself up again and tucks, its, tucks itself back into the chromosome. So sometimes we want to switch on genes when we need these proteins. And sometimes when we don't need the proteins, we want to switch off these genes. And the reason these genes switch on and switch off is due to things that are happening in our environment. So perfect example is when we, in, we, we drink dairy milk, lactose, our body recognizes that there's the sugar lactose that needs to be broken down. So this gene opens up, the lactose gene, LCT gene. It produces an enzyme called lactase, which breaks down lactose, and our body is able to, to process it. And everything goes great with our morning coffee. But in some of us, right? When we open up that lactose gene, we have a spelling change in that lactose gene. And when we make the enzyme, it isn't made very well. Right. Okay. It's a suboptimal enzyme. So when we try to break down the lactose in our morning coffee, it doesn't work very well. We get cramps and maybe diarrhea and bloating. So something in our environment caused, in this case, the coffee the, full of dairy milk caused that gene to, to unravel. So now we're starting to understand that every single decision we make, every minute of the day, every day of our lives is changing our gene expression. It's switching on genes and switching off genes. So when we put the two together, we now have the full picture, which is understand who you are, understand your spending changes, understand how you respond to the world around you, and then make changes decisions to switch on a switch of genes because it's only that true healing happens when your genes are producing proteins to heal yourself when we use pharmaceuticals and drugs absolutely have their place or where we think that um taking a vitamin c supplement is going to fix things it's never going to fix things <laughs> but when we can use a, a supplement like a sulforaphane supplement or turmeric or berberine the supplements that switch on and switch off genes are the most powerful supplements. The foods mm. that switch on genes, the most powerful. So, so we always we know broccoli is an amazing food, but part of the reason is it contains a compound 
that switches on genes that help us detox, that help decrease inflammation. So the full circle of epigenetics is really the idea of food is medicine. Mm. So now we have what we call insights and action, where we understand ourselves and we make very self-aware decisions to be able to switch on genes that heal ourselves. So that's kind of genetic 101. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Well, this is quite a juxtaposition against what we have right now in our modern medicine, where most people are making health decisions based on generalized recommendations for everybody without ever truly understanding their own body. Know thyself, as you were saying. Tell us how the one size fits all model to health has failed. Well, I mean, I don't, I think everyone knows it's failed. You just have to look around you, you know, so we, everyone knows the amount of cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, but even worse than that, anxiety, depression, kind of the mood disorders, cognitive function, loss of memory, it's everywhere. So something about the choices we're making in our lifestyle is not fitting the kind of ancestral DNA that we have. There's this major disconnect between the choices we're making. And we know that's happening because we look at our food sources and we look at the food that's available to ourselves and our children. And it's, you know, it's high fractose corn syrup and sugar and refined carbohydrate and some scary fats that are frying our foods. And so we know that all all of these things are switching on and switching off genes that are not conducive, that don't match in, in harmony with our DNA. And the way that the healthcare system was built, and it was built a to to deal with acute episodes of care. So you know, like I have a heart attack or I get hit by a car. Healthcare, fantastic, acute medicine. We also know that the pharmaceutical industry has been built on a similar concept of switching on and switching off genes, but with a sledgehammer. <laughs> so I always describe the difference between taking a dr- so so these genes I was talking about that broccoli activate, we can have drugs that activate them a thousand times stronger than broccoli. The problem is it's like taking a sledgehammer to your body. Mm. So we talk about activation versus modulation. So a drug can switch on genes, but it switches on so hard and so much that it almost like knocks out the whole system, right? It's like yeah. one of those really big power drinks. Whereas nutrition and meditation and cold water is, is, is gentle. So it modulates, it works in harmony with the genes. So what we're trying to get away from is this kind of sledgehammer approach, which the body cannot modulate because the body is actually brilliant. And if we allow it to kind of run its own processes, it does really well. We need to support it with great nutrition and decrease the toxins in the environment. But um, the system of acute medicine and pharmaceuticals and one, don't get me wrong, I use drugs when I absolutely have to, but there are so many times where nutrition is just going to be a smarter choice to be able to allow the body to, to heal itself. Yeah. Could you expand a little bit on how medicine currently focuses on symptoms and not the root causes of things? Most of my career and all my, so my, I started off as a dietitian and, and it was just horrible because for a couple of reasons. So one is, my whole program studying to be a dietitian was disease-based. So the first thing I learned about was diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and defined by symptoms. So if you have diabetes or if you have Alzheimer's, these are the symptoms. And when we treat a patient, we treat those symptoms. And it was a very long time before I discovered the wonderful world of functional medicine, which made me understand 
that when you when you go to sleep one night and you don't have cancer and you wake up the next morning and you have cancer, that is a lie. Mm. So these chronic, what we call chronic diseases of lifestyle, take 10, 20, 30, 40 years to grow in our bodies, right? So cancer doesn't just appear, except in the rarest of rarest of rarest of occasions. All these diseases I've mentioned happen over time, and they happen because somewhere in our body, at a cell level, something isn't functioning optimally. So we talk about dysfunction, cell dysfunction, systems dysfunction. It could be your glucose and insulin isn't functioning optimally. It could be your detoxification, your inflammation. And so what we talk about is root cause analysis, right? Or in my world, we talk about core cellular systems. What are those functions in your cell that are happening trillions of times a day that if they're not happening optimally, will have an effect downstream that over time will cause more dysfunction, manifest as symptoms, and ultimately those symptoms will be grouped together and called a disease. Hmm. And we know whether it's a migraine or diabetes or Alzheimer's, there is no one migraine, there is no one diabetes, that they manifest differently because of where the root cause came from. So the great world of integrative and functional medicine said, well, there's no point in treating the end. That's just kind of managing the car crash. Let's go back and understand what was going wrong 10, 20, 30 years ago that was dysfunctional or suboptimal. Fix that. Because if we can fix that, we can delay or prevent or manage what is happening downstream. So we keep very far away from this concept of disease management, which is very much our healthcare system, and symptom management, which is very much our healthcare system, and really do what we call like upstream medicine or root cause analysis, which is, and then we find, because people have multiple problems, they never have just diabetes. And so we started seeing that obesity, diabetes, they all had things in common like inflammation. So we thought, well, what happens if we target inflammation? Then maybe we're going to solve, because we know even that if you're overweight and battling with weight and you have a switched on genes in the inflammation and those inflammatory genes are not switching off, you will never lose weight if you Mm. don't deal with the inflammation. So we started realizing if we just go back upstream and solve those real core problems, we're going to solve a whole bunch of stuff going downstream. So that is that is really where the most exciting place is. And we're going to do it in a personalized fashion. So the concept, I have a great slide, which I put up, which is really the dietary guidelines, the USA dietary <laughs> guidelines. You know, and I, I and this was my undergrad, right? This is being a dietitian. I was like, how could we possibly imagine that the billions of people on this in this world all need the same diet? When we have three to four million places in our DNA that are different and yet one diet. And that that's the same whether it's paleo or keto or any of those diets. I'd like to shift to the solution side of this. We've started to paint a picture about, you know, we don't have a quite very good understanding of our own bodies and the different genes that we have and ways that we can turn them on and off. And we're also not understanding some of our lifestyle choices and how that's the root cause of many things. Tell us about 3x4 genetics and the solution you guys are putting forth to enhance health, well-being, and performance. So after my 
horrible dietetics degree, I, I went kind of looking for answers of how we could understand health better. And I landed up by chance, if there's such a thing as chance, a um, wonderful world of genetics. And I started working genetics in the year 2000, which was, you know, 22 years ago and very early. So like three years before the human genome was even drafted. And so I was very lucky to land up and, and courageous enough to start working in this area of genetics where we could start looking, testing people's DNA and looking for these spelling changes to start understanding how we could give them better advice. So the first genetic test that I was part of building was in 2000, and, and most of my career has been about how do we provide a way for individuals and practitioners, healthcare practitioners, to understand their patients to make much better decisions right up front. Because the other thing about the healthcare system is it's a trial and error system. Right. You know, we're going to try you on this drug. We're going to try you on this diet. Let me know how you do. And then come back to me and then we'll try something else. And there's a huge cost to that. There's a, there's a emotional cost. There's a psychological cost. And there's a physiological cost. So even every time you try something on the body that isn't what the body needs, <laughs> there's a cost to that as well. Yeah. So why we love genetics is we call about the genes first approach, which is to reduce the trial and error, mm-hmm. to really get to the answers quicker. Because we know if I had to give the broadest, broadest overview, I would say half of who we are and what determines our choices is genetic. And the other half is going to be all the other things that are happening in our life. So I did an entire degree without mentioning the word gene once, once mm. in dietetics. So we were taught how to build diets without understanding 50% of the equation. <laughs> so it's insane. Now yeah. looking back, it's like, yeah. And, and the reality is it's still happening. So we haven't done that well. But so I wanted to build a company that did a whole bunch, that really changed the industry. I wanted to uplift the industry, A, by offering a genetic test that really gave us, I mean, we, we now can do a whole lot of stuff in 2022 that we couldn't do in 20 in 2000, gave us deep insight into why we're different and how we respond to the world around us. Mm. And so, But I also wanted to create an ecosystem for that test that meant that you as a consumer would have a really positive and valuable engagement with your genetics and also that healthcare practitioners would be uplifted and upskilled to be able to work with genetics in their practice and be able to extract the value because the genetic testing industry over the last 20 years has essentially failed quite miserably, mm. even though I've kind of been part of it in that we got really good at testing, but not at translating. So mm. we were like, you know, we could, we, so the biggest testing companies are ancestry companies testing 20 million people. So you know who your cousin might be and where you come from but you don't know what to eat for breakfast. Right. So the value to your daily decision-making was extremely low. So most people are feeling very underwhelmed and disappointed by the experience of genetics. So I really wanted to change that. And I wanted to show how genetics really can change your life. So Genetics for Genetics, which is a company I founded about uh, four or five years ago, was ready to upskill practitioners through education, mentorship, nurturing, handholding to really be able to dig deep and find the gems of genetics to working with their patients. And their patients might be chronically ill in in the diseases kind of we just asked them for, or they might be people who are just wanting to live their healthiest life 
have a great kind of health span, prevents disease. It could be a sports athlete and it could be weight, of course. Mm-hmm. So however it was, we wanted to give the tool of insight of genetics to practitioners to work with their patients. So to do that, we had to build a really brilliant test that spoke to you, the, the user. And in my entire career of building genetic tests, I had always built them. And then I had this epiphany four or five years ago that scientists shouldn't build products. <laughs> that, and and I, it's amazing it took me so long, you know, that that we're good at science, but we don't understand user experience. We don't understand design thinking. We don't understand behavioral modification using kind of elements of design. So I, when I started through for the first thing I did was I actually formed a partnership with a company called Seamonster, which was a behavioral gamification company. Mm. So they use gamification in kind of education to change behavior. And I realized that that was the piece of the puzzle that I had no sense of whatsoever. And so that was the beginning of Tree Four, and it changed pretty much everything that we did because we built this beautiful report where we used color as a language, we used storytelling, and we used imagery. We call it the visual conversation to bring the individual into the story of their genetics to understand why the decisions they were making were impacting them. So, so kind of saying, well, like, this is your DNA. You can choose to make the decision or not, but it's not my DNA. So, and it's yours for life, right? Right. Your sequence doesn't change. So, so we built three, uh, four based on these pillars of excellent science, beautiful engagement, high education for the practitioner, mentorship and handholding to give them the confidence and and engagement that they needed, and then we built a community because. When I started out in genetics, I was alone. I was like a leper in the industry. You know, everyone told me it was a career-limiting move. I was totally isolated from my peers, and it was very, it was very hard. It took like my kind of like personality to really stick it out. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to build a community for practitioners where they felt safe, where they could come and they could learn, they could ask questions of each other, they could connect. Multi, it's completely multidisciplinary. No one owns the world of what I call lifestyle genetics, not just nutrition, the cold water, it's the meditation, it's the connection, it's the laughing, it's the hugging, that they could come and they could join and they could learn together and kind of learn from each other and kind of all grow. So that is the world of Treat for Genetics, which we've now been in the US for two years. We launched it four years ago in South Africa. And we you know, have quite a few thousands of practitioners now living in this community and all going from dipping a toe into this world of genetics and being quite overwhelmed and intimidating it to, to becoming experts that, mm. that then obviously get passed on to, to the individual to empower them to make these better decisions. Right. I'm a little curious about your choice in bringing a network of health professionals in to work with the consumer when they get these reports rather than just going direct to consumer and having maybe a database of education that they can look up when they get this gene report and see, oh, I have these genes. How is how I can switch them on and off and, you know, giving full power to just the consumer? Very good question. And the way you phrase it is very good because you're hundred percent right. So when I, when I had a really hard look, when I was trying to kind of, when I was going through my kind of crisis of failure of looking back at the industry and, and trying to figure out what it failed and what it succeeded, my sense was that the direct-to-consumer engagement had failed completely. Mm. And 
when I looked at the, the tests that were being offered to, to consumers, so you could do a 23, there's many tests you could do. There are hundreds of them, right? Right. And I was looking at the engagement. What happens with direct-to-consumer genetics is that because I have no idea who you are, Brandon, I don't know your history, I don't know your goals and dreams, I don't know your medical history, I don't know what you what your day looks like, I don't know whether you're a vegan, whether you care about the climate, whether you care about hormones, and I don't know anything about you. I don't know about your family history. So I produce a genetic report that dumbs down everything because I don't know you. Mm. So the, the thing about genetics is that two things. One is it's not your destiny, right? As we spoke about, we can change the way our genes express themselves, our way our genes behavior. The other thing is genes aren't an answer by themselves. They, mm. they will never be. So remember I said like genes are maybe 50% of the equation. For some people, maybe 30, 40, for some 70, 80, but they're only part of the answer to who you are. So if I only look at your genes and only give you recommendations on your genes, it's the genetics and they gave the other half of the equation. Right. So I'm giving you answers without the other part of the equation. So for me, genetics out of context of the, of the person is failing in the same way that that nutrition out of context of genetics is failing. But so I started out by saying, if I want to really empower you to make the best decisions, what do I need? And genetics is complicated. So even teaching practitioners, I realized the journey of education and learning in a practitioner who's got a science degree to understand switching on and switching off genes and being able to look up a gene and read about it was going to be extremely difficult. It doesn't mean that we're not trying to solve. I'm going to tell you how we're going to try to solve the problem. But to start out, I needed to fix the the the, the bottom because Baseline, you may yeah. get a test and go, you know, this is really interesting, but I want to dive deeper. And to dive deeper, I'm going to go to a practitioner who's been trained in this and we're going to explore deeper, especially if you have a complex chronic disease. You really needed someone to put the dots together and really deep, dive deeper. So I wanted to make sure that every individual got the greatest value from understanding their genetics. And to do that, I needed to work with practitioners. Can you explain a little bit about your guys' genetic test compared to some of the other ones out there? You mentioned like 23andMe. And because I think you guys, from my research, go a little deeper than some of the things that they're testing for. Yes, that's right. So the the issue with 23andMe and many companies like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, is, is what they want, why they're wanting to test you. So, so we need to understand their business model and we need to understand, and then we'll talk about why their test is different in terms of what you actually get. So all these, especially 23andMe, because they're so transparent and commercialized, is they want to test as many people as possible. And they have well over 10 million. I think they're probably into 12, 13 million, something around that. Right. At the cheapest possible price, because they want as many people as possible, and then they're going to give you some information, which is ancestry, which is great. Really, I mean, it is great. I, I love ancestry. And then they depersonalize the data. So they take away your name and your details. And if you give them permission to keep not your name, but your health information, which is what they really want. And then they sell it to a pharmaceutical company, in this case, Glaxo, for $300 million. You have a partnership because... They're trying to figure out how they can use genetics plus 
knowing who you are for new drug discovery. Mm. And it's pretty smart because drug discovery is a really archaic way of doing it, the way it's currently done. So it takes 10 years and it costs a billion dollars to try and discover new drugs. So what they're saying is if I understand your genetics and I understand whether you're sick or healthy or something about you, we can try and find new drugs. Now, so far they haven't found anything, <laughs> but really it's not a bad idea, but it's also their business model and there's nothing in their business model about health, nothing mm-hmm. at all, right? So when they do the genetic test, they use something called, they use a, something called low-pass genetic testing. Well, first of all, they built a chip. So a chip is something you build from the laboratory, which has all the genes on it you want to test. And the genes that they put on were very related to ancestry and to drug discovery. The genes we built into our chip are very related to health mm. and all the upstream processes that we spoke about that we really understand about. And the problem is that some of the genes that we want to know about that are really important for your health are quite tricky to test, which makes our testing process what we call a clinical-grade genetic test, which is more expensive, it's slower, and also we test every gene variant three times to mm. make sure that we get the same result all three times before we release it to you. That's part of working with a clinical-grade product, whereas in 2020, they just can test it once, and the result is the result. So the two issues, one is we wanted to make sure that we had all the genes we needed, which we couldn't get if we used 23andMe because they miss out some really important ones. And also that the quality of the testing, we use a higher clinical grade testing. There are some cases where you can use 23andMe, like for sports, where, where you're not giving clinical information. But in our space, we can't use that information. And mm-hmm. that is, and there are a lot of companies who will say, upload your 23andMe data and we'll right. give you a, a, a report for $20. And, and they're horrible, those reports. I mean, they're, they're horrible. They don't know you. They're missing a whole lot of super important genes. You know, we can get into the detail of that. But, it, but, but in essence, it's, I, I actually have a lot of respect for 23andMe for what they're doing in terms of drug discovery. But we must be very clear that they're not a health company. Yeah. And that sounds like not so much for the consumers, like knowledge about what they can do with their life. You know, they get this information, as you mentioned with your company, the insights plus the action. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the action side. Like once we get this report, maybe give us an example of something you guys call DNA dieting and how knowing your genetics will help us. I love the world of genetics and weight because I started off as a dietitian. I always battled with my weight my whole life. And I was always um, horrified that by, the, by what I was told, you know, that you just lack self-control, that you've got no willpower, that you're kind of greedy, especially when I was younger as a child and would love eating. I mean, I always had a huge appetite. <laughs> and, you know, my mother sent me to dietitian when I was like 12 and put me on this horrible, horrible low-calorie diet that I was kind of like, it was just horrible. Everything was horrible, right? And we, everyone who listens to this like, has experienced part of this, or if they haven't experienced, then they know someone who has, that you go to a dietitian and you get a diet sheet and you're told, you know, if you just reduce your calories and increase your, your expenditure, that you'll lose weight. And then you come back to them next week and you say, well, I did everything you told me and I, I haven't lost weight. And the, the person turns around and says, you must have been cheating. You didn't follow what I did. And that is the world that dietetics was built on. And it's a lie. It's an absolute lie. And what it's done 
it's create a sense of failure in millions and millions and millions of people around the world that they have failed. Mm. But actually, they didn't fail. The kind of science failed them. And what we've come to understand through genetics is the complexity of, of what I of call of consuming calories, storing calories, and burning up calories. And when we started breaking it down, we understood that it, the one area which I really love is understanding even how and why we eat. Mm-hmm. So when we started looking at genetics, I discovered this amazing thing, believe it or not, like 20 years in the industry, and I didn't realize that we all experience hunger differently. Mm. So if you and I fast for 12 hours and don't eat anything, at the 12-hour mark, your hunger and my hunger are not the same hunger. I might be so ravishingly hungry that I could literally eat 10 chickens. <laughs> and you might say, well, I'm great, a bowl of soup and you know, a nice salad will go down great and I'll feel fine. So hunger is very determined by genetics. And we we see it in children who are extremely hungry, who are driven by hunger, and the parents will be like, you're greedy, you're just eating all the time, or or even the concept, the concept of comfort eating. But actually, we experience hunger differently. We experience fullness differently. So you and I have our, our, our cheeseburger and chips after our fast, and you're like, that was great, I feel full, that was fantastic. And I'm like, I'm kind of hungry, <laughs> you know, and I need something more. So. It was a huge awakening me for me to understand that I don't experience hunger in the same way. So I should never patronize my patients in that way to assume that I understand what they're going through. And also that even my behavior around eating. So some of us are driven to snack, to, to eat continuously. And, and some of us will be driven to very comfortably eat three meals a day. So you take someone who's genetically more inclined to snack and you put them on an intermittent fasting and you tell them they can only eat six hours a day and and then you can't understand. And you're like, oh, it's so easy. I do it all the time. So this is one of the areas that I, I find totally fascinating. The other thing is around even addiction behavior, around mm-hmm. this concept of comfort eating. Like why do, for some of us, we'll consume food to make us feel better and we have these amazing genes called DRD2, DRD1, 2, 3, 4, which are related to dopamine. And dopamine is a feel-good hormone and a reward behavior hormone. So we do things to boost our dopamine, to make us feel better. And it could be that we gamble or we take drugs or we drink alcohol or we eat carbohydrate or we eat sugar. Some of us drive our dopamine levels high by doing a large amount of exercise. Even cold water can help with dopamine. So Understanding if an individual is driven to drive dopamine by using carbohydrates and sugars is really important to understand because yeah. it's not this superficial concept of you're a comfort eater. You should you should go and start learning to knit, you know, so that you knit instead of kind of eat. And then understanding how we like store calories and how we burn them up. And people who can train for marathons and don't shift their weight, like how's that possible? So it's been an amazing journey for me, understanding, and I give entire uh, talks and lectures about genetics of weight because when I started having conversations with patients around, and I'll say to them, I'm looking at your genetics and I can see it's been really hard, you know, that you gain weight easily and it's been hard for you to lose weight, they would like start crying because no one in their life had heard them. Yeah. 
they had just been told calories in and calories out <laughs> and you're cheating. So it's it's a it's a it's an amazing world that has opened up in with a lot of compassion and empathy and understanding why for some of us it's hard and then trying to figure out a plan to navigate that and whether it's building in a lot of kind of CBT behavior, behavioral therapy, also a lot of expectation and management around goals, like what is a realistic weight? What is a healthy weight? I'm never going to be slim. How can I feel? So it's just, it, it doesn't mean we all have to walk around a beast. It's about understanding who we are, self-knowledge, and how we respond to the world around us, which is kind of where we started. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Well, I wanted to bring up uh, one concern about genetics and with the availability of people's genetics, are you concerned at all about maybe prejudice that comes up with understanding people's you know, genetic data? For example, I, I could think of, you know, we just had the COVID pandemic. If we knew that there was a certain gene that certain people reacted differently to this virus, that we separated them from the rest of the public. That's an extreme example, but something that could be done with understanding people's genetic data. Yeah, and there were a whole bunch of companies who launched COVID genetic tests during the pandemic who said, and they're not they're not wrong. So they, I just thought it was a bit soon. I thought mm -hmm. that they rushed it. But but basically, they were saying is one of the fascinating things about COVID is why do some people um, get COVID and have such an awful response and and died and and had long and not getting long COVID, so long haul COVID and and others who have COVID and kind of after right. so it is a, a brilliant conversation and it's entirely about spelling changes and genetics of why some of us responded to COVID in one way and not another way so it's a really important conversation the thing about genetics I guess is is and there's a wonderful book if you are interested in the topic um it's called the gene literally it's mm. called the gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee and the reason I love this book and it's great as an audio book because it's quite a big book but is he brings the philosophy of genetics into the history of genetics. Mm -hmm. And there's a wonderful chapter on eugenics, right? Eugenics is where we use genetics to separate populations. So it's basically the foundation of the Aryan race and Hitler, right. of, you know, we've got. But the interesting thing about eugenics is it didn't originate in Germany. It originated in the South of America, mm -hmm. right? Eugenics came from some, the southern states of the, of the USA, where, so I won't say anymore now, but essentially it's always been done. So genetics has always been kind of used by kind of the, the people on the wrong side of, of good to say like, I'm better than you or I'm worse than you and I se should separate from you. So that hasn't changed and that's part of history. But what we need to understand and always look at the balance is the good birth, what, what is the good that we can get out of genetics? What is the bad that can come out of genetics and where does the power lie mm. and and it's the same as we're going to be having conversations about stem cell research and you know gene editing you know CRISPR. right it's all the same that all of these technologies have the ability to solve some of the great problems of human health and all of them in the hands of um of the wrong people have the ability to work against society Right. So, you know, for me, the the important thing is the more good work we do and the more we educate the consumer and because ultimately the consumer is buying into the story of, of how genetics can be used, 
We obviously need to watch regulation and make sure um, we keep our data safe that the individual has the right to their data and to protect their data. So when you sign up with a genetic testing company, ask the tough questions. Mm. You want to see the privacy policies. You want to know who does the gene testing, who the scientists are, how they store your data, do they destroy your DNA. So for me, there is an inevitability about genetics being part of our daily life. Mm. So ultimately, we will have a DNA passport that is part of who we are and every drug that we get will be based on our DNA, the dosage and the type of drug, the nutrition we do, the exercise we do, the meditation we choose. So genetics is here and will just become more of who we are. But as individuals, we we can decide who we engage with by asking the tough calls because there will always be an evil force out there who is looking to to take genetics and use it to their own. So this is not new. This is part, I don't know if that's kind of the answer, but this is part of history and always has been. The only difference is consumers now have greater power and greater voice. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, that was what I was looking for. I mean, with new technology, new tools, it's up to us to decide how those are actually used. And thank you for recommending the book about the bringing the philosophy side into the history of genetics. We'll put that in the show notes. I'd like to shift to your story a bit because it's a very, very fascinating journey that you've had. And you've had quite a journey getting into nutrigenomics. But before we get to that part, you originally started in architecture. And I, too, was originally in architecture before doing all the things oh, I, I do now. What drew you to architecture? I never had any interest in science whatsoever or in healthcare or in medicine none at all actually and I studied art at school and English and history and those were my great passions history English and art and I was convinced I'd go to art school my parents were horrified at that idea <laughs> and I and and they probably weren't wrong I'm not sure I was ever good enough for art school but I I loved art and so I chose architecture actually because I was very academic mm. And and it was it was a degree that brought art and academia together. Really, I loved the I loved the the kind of science that sat behind the architecture, and I I loved the fact that it would impact people's lives. So I loved architecture, and I loved the fact that it still brought a lot of creativity in. So I, I loved architecture. I had no issue with it. But um, but then what happened was my grand died from cancer. Mm-hmm. And I was very close to my grand. I only had one grandparent, and I spent an incredible amount of time. She was very nurturing and she was really like my kind of caring person in my life. And by the time they discovered her cancer, she was so far gone. They kind of opened her up and closed up and said, you know, you've got a couple of months to live. There's nothing we can do. And this is in 1988, I think. So it was quite a while ago. And the way that they treated her and the answers that they gave us as a family were absolutely devastating Mm -hmm. so first of all there were no answers right (laughs) so when I asked in my precocious like 19 year old why did she get the cancer what caused the cancer what did she do in her life that made her get this cancer why didn't we know how did we not pick it up earlier surely we could have treated her better what could she have done to prevent it no one had any answers for me but nothing and they just shut me down Mm -hmm. no one would talk to me in fact, they wouldn't even talk to her. This is the most horrible thing is they wouldn't even tell her she had cancer. They said it would be better if she didn't. They would say, oh, you'll get better. And she was dead within a month. And so when I was sitting next to her bed every day, kind of chatting to her, believing, I used to bring her chick- uh, vegetable soups and smoothies 
in my naivety. The poor woman couldn't eat anything, but I had this, you know, like desperation of trying to feed her some nutrition. I made a decision that that had to do something. I had to do something to find the answers. Like I just wanted answers and that I would never forgive myself if I didn't understand what had happened to her. And I dropped out of architecture school, not because I didn't love it. I still love it, but because I just needed to know. And so I settled for this journey, again, extreme naivety, which is maybe not a bad thing because it, it drives me places, of looking for a degree in health. I wanted to study health. And I wanted to answer the questions around my grad. Right. And so I started phoning all the universities and asking for a degree in health, which you can imagine how funny that was <laughs> in, in 1988. And they sent me to home economics. So uh, home economics, where I could learn to bake scones and make macaroni cheese and knit. And they sent me to food science and obviously to medicine. And I knew that obviously there were no answers there. So the only degree I could find that had an inkling of what I was looking for was dietetics. And But I had no science. I had mm. no science. I didn't study, I studied biology, but I didn't study any physics and chemistry, which is prerequisite. So I managed to talk my way into university. I don't think these days you can, but in those days you could. And I had to go and do like a, a Bachelor of Science degree in physics and chemistry, which is horrible. And I hated it. And I didn't connect with it in any way, but I, I kind of suffered through it and finally got myself into the dietetics program. And mm. three three weeks into the program, I was in tears. I was like, I always, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's one moment in your life that is so defining. And I was sitting in the lecture and the lecturer said, we've got a patient, case study, patients in hospital, they've come in with a heart attack and everything. What are we going to feed them? And they had this um, image of um, chocolate cake and ice cream. And I was like, at that stage, I was like into eating macrobiotic. I was living off brown rice and steamed vegetables and kind of kimchi before kimchi was kimchi. And, and I was like, what? And they were like, yes, chocolate cake and ice cream. I was like, why would you give a chronically ill patient in a hospital chocolate cake? And they were like, it's got protein, it's got <laughs> calories, it's got energy, it's got calcium, it's got vitamin D. And I knew at that moment that I would that this quality, this degree was a disaster, like it was a failure. Right. A failure. And I was only three weeks in. And I'd spent like two years trying to get into the program. So it was, yeah. and I'd left home to go to, you know. So I, I had to make a decision whether to to leave and go do something else. And the only option was to go to medicine, where I knew I'd have more of the same. It wouldn't be any different. Or to just go back to architecture or go do something different. Anyway, I decided to stay and spent another five horrible years in dietetics, basically arguing with my, my lectures all the time. I was a horrible student. <laughs> Got the degree, but had no answers at all. Like five years later, had not found a single answer. So I, I, I left South Africa and went backpacking, as many South Africans do, to go and travel around Europe. And because the South African rand is so awful, I, I worked in a clinic in London to make some money before I can go traveling. And I was approached by this extraordinary woman, Dr. Rosalind Gill Garrison. And she was a, a, an amazing visionary, a geneticist. And she believed that the future of medicine was going to be nutrition and genetics together. Mm. And this is in 2000. And she wanted, She started a company. She was the only person in the company. She managed to get an angel investor. And she was looking for a dietitian to work with her to help her build the first nutrigenomic test, nutrition genetics. 
anyway, and I was the only dietitian at the clinic. And she said, you know, will you come spend three days with me in Southampton? And I said, sure. Like for me, it was a train ride and going to see a different city. And, but there was something about, I knew nothing of what she was talking about. It was like Greek to me, but there was something about the conversation of this genetics that even though I didn't understand really what she was on about, really intrigued me. Mm. And at the end of the three days, she said to me, you know, you, would you like to come work with me? And I was like, you know, I'd love to, but I know, honestly, I know nothing about genetics and I don't know that I could help. You need a dietitian who specializes in genetics. And she right. said, well, I've searched the world. <laughs> they don't exist. There aren't any. They don't exist. I said, well, I'm, I would love to come with you and I will learn. I will apply myself and learn, got myself a big textbook on genetics. And I joined Rosin as a second employee, and we we built the first genetic test. The company only lasted seven years. I moved to America with the company, but about three, four years in, I was getting quite grumpy because I realized that there were two geneticists, itself and another genetist at the time, that they got to do the really fun stuff, which is choose the genes and you know do the genetic research, and I got to like write diet recommendations, <laughs> and I was long past, like so over that. So. I had discovered functional medicine and and knew that I, I needed to do more. I still hadn't solved my questions. So I went back to university and I went back and I wanted to study nutrigenomics, but it didn't exist right. as, a, as, a, as a degree, right? So I, I did a PhD and I put together my PhD. So I cobbled it together. I, again, I don't know that I would have got away with it now, but then I managed to convince the department to do it. I did it in the Department of Physiology. And basically what I did was I got a genetic supervisor, a nutrition supervisor, a biostatistician supervisor, and I put together a team that if you put them all together, they made nutrigenomics. Sure. And, and so I did the first PhD in nutrigenomics in South Africa. It took me forever because I was working and having children. But it was, it was a really great experience. And I learned, I was in a lab for two years doing my own genetic work, which was not not great for my personality, but brilliant for me is understanding like the real core of genetics, which is mm. with your little pipettes and, you know, kind of doing gels. And, and that's changed everything for me. I was always working in nutrigenomics all through the time of doing my PhD. But when I came out, I felt that I really owned enough knowledge to be able to be the geneticist and the nutritionist and, and really start building out education programs and which I did about the education company. I opened a clinic, a genetics clinic and building genetics that really would kind of come full circle. And, and, and it was only, to be honest, it was only about five years ago. So like 17 years, like 15 years into my career where I felt that I'd found the answers that I was looking for to my grant. Mm. So it wasn't, and it was, it was because I could close that loop of where you and I began our conversation of insight and action, because the first 15 years of my career were all about insight, the, the, the gene variance, the sequence. And it was only when I started understanding that feedback loop between understanding the sequence we inherit and then being able to change gene expression that I got the answers that I was looking for from my grants. So it was a very long journey, a very, yeah. very long journey. But that's, and that's kind of where I landed up. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of points I'd like to touch in your journey. The first is with, you know, your first mentor in the space, Dr. Gil Garrison, and working in that first company, what did you, you know, what are one or two things that you really learned from that founder that would help you eventually launch your own company? Yeah. And, and 
there, there have been like three extraordinary women mentor mentors for me that that have been really i mean i, I give full credit to them it, it, in fact I, i don't know if you've ever spoken to any other founders of experiences but every four or five years i hit a roadblock mm. and every four or five years i encounter a new mentor and it still happens to this day you know the thing that i actually gained most from rosalind was was courage and vision that mm. she had seen a way that no one had seen had the courage and boldness to go out and start a company that had never been done in a country like England which is the most conservative science company it's a little bit better now but in those days it was terrible in a field that no one had done and she 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 was like i was like so i, so I think the thing i got from rosam most was to be courageous and bold mm-hmm. and don't take no and also to watch her navigate sitting at a table of of men of mm-hmm. white men with money who who were on our board who needed to fund the company and you know here we are 20 years later we're still fighting that battle but but she she was one of the most courageous and visionary and smart women and that's what i took from her mostly and she gave me the courage to go out and study genetics and believe that i could kind of forge ahead in the same way that that she had well you've also been a part of several other startups including a company selling emergency bracelets and then yeah. a company focused on dna testing and then teaching afterwards when you you know got the expertise in nutrigenomics as you went through each one of these opportunities how were you assessing if this is the right solution or having the impact that you actually wanted before moving on to the next thing so i don't think that i've ever felt that i've had enough impact so mm. i don't think so my reason for moving on to something else have never been because i'm satisfied with the impact that i've had i don't know that an entrepreneur and it's taken me about 25 years to call myself an entrepreneur <laughs> like i've never owned that title but i think now i own it you know in, in with three x for genetics i feel like i own it even though as you say i keep on starting companies is that i think it's the feeling that you're never having enough impact that actually drives you on to the next thing mm. and so, so i've left companies for different reasons M- mostly because i felt that we weren't having enough impact that we had lost our way in terms of being brave and courageous so some of the genetic testing companies that i've founded and and be part of I mean, so on a close, but DNA Life was a very big one that I was part of for seven years. We founded with Danny Mansfield. I left because I felt that they weren't pushing the boundaries enough. They'd mm. become too complacent, and that uh, this whole user experience and um, really engaging with the practice. Like, I just felt that they weren't. They were too focused on the commercial model and not on changing the industry and changing. So, so that's why I left that one. I I left genetics for a couple of years um after so when when I was totally burnt out after totally burnt out and I just needed a couple of years off from mm. genetics and I started a company doing emergency bracelets and tags that you have engraved and put in your shoe because I used to go running in the mountains and I was always worried I'd be attacked by a mountain lion and no one would know who I was <laughs> yeah and I I and I'd never actually founded a company I bought a book you know I had to write a business plan and I followed this book had to write a business plan and then i you know so that was actually the first company that i completely founded myself and as i say like i had to learn how to write a business plan and did everything i was like a one woman show and then hired like one assistant and 
into that company, um, I sold to my sister, who was actually better at running it than me. And she's a brilliant salesperson. And then she sold it to someone in South Africa and went to the UK and launched it in the UK. Oh, nice. And the one in South Africa just sold it. And and all of that. So actually, it wasn't a great business for me because I was much more into genetics. But it's beautiful to watch how they've taken it and made it into a fantastic business and really had a great impact. So I realized that Every four or five years, I generally hit a, a roadblock of, of discontent and, and, and disillusionment where I look back at the four or five years that I've been in and I'm like, that wasn't good enough. Like, I haven't had the impact. I'm not reaching enough people. I'm not changing lives. I'm not. And it's not about commercial success. It's, it's never. It's, right, it's around like, I'm just not happy. It's not mm. good enough. And that has been my, you know, when you've been doing it for 25 years, 30 years you can look back and start seeing your pattern. Yeah. And I've, I've now can almost track my pattern that every four or five years I go on like a pilgrimage where I, I go to, I go look for ideas and I'll, I've worked out that I, I go to conferences that are not in my field. That's the way I do mm. it. I go to a conference that is not in genetics or nutrition and I go traveling. And somehow between the two, I come back and I realize what I was missing. And then I kind of launch into my next. And that is what I, I, I often give, like recommend other entrepreneurs. It's like, you will never feel content. Like mm-hmm. it's just, I think it's the nature of the game. Like if you're feeling content, you're probably not an entrepreneur. Yeah. Well, your father was a serial entrepreneur. You're obviously a serial he entrepreneur. Was. What are a few key lessons that maybe you're teaching your children about building solutions and businesses and all that? Yeah, I think it's actually like it's absorbed in the ether because my kids <laughs> are quite entrepreneurial and we often talk about business ideas at the dinner table, which is very funny. Mostly it's my son is like he's only nine and he wants to buy another Funko Pop, but that's fine, whatever drives him, you know. So I think, you know, when I look back, first of all, as I said, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur until I started doing podcasts. Hmm. And they kept on telling me that I was an entrepreneur and I said, okay, fine, I'll, I'll own it. I really never intended to be one i never set out to be one i set out to be a scientist and to solve the problem of cancer and but what as you said what's interesting is my father was a serial entrepreneur brilliant brilliant total non-academic didn't finish school had no value for academics whatsoever wasn't interested in me getting a degree in any shape or form and he would we all we spoke about was business you know, I was working every holiday, every summer in his business. We didn't have a choice. And we were selling on the sales floor when I was like eight, you know, and and he had, and it was interesting because he had no value for my degrees. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated. Like, I was like, I was like, didn't even notice when I finished school kind of thing. So I was quite an anti the entrepreneur life. You know, I was going to be the big academic in the family and despite him and but what I actually look back um, on my life and I laugh and I was like, who he was and and his talent for entrepreneurship was so much part of me, even though I was in complete denial for the first couple of decades. Sure. And how much I learned at the dinner table, as you say, which I'm kind of now having with my kids. And the thing that he taught me most is courage and boldness. Oh, mm. he was, he was like a lion. He, he was fearless. He would he would take on and build things that everyone else said would fail. And sometimes they did. And that's the other thing he taught me. He had as many successes as he had failures. Mm. We would be millionaires one day and have nothing the next day. We would, we would never wealthy because we were always 
in between having a company and not having a company. And so I, I think that was a great gift, you know, that, that he would pick himself up and he would start another business. Mm. Just like his company, he, we, once we had a whole warehouse burned down, completely decimated the company. And he literally like just got out of the stock that he could that wasn't destroyed by the fire and went like opened a little shop and started selling. He just, he had this spirit that you he would just pick himself up and start again, pick himself up and start again. And he would never, ever listen to anyone telling him that it couldn't be done. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, it was it's, a, it's an amazing story that only in the last like five, 10 years, it's like, you're my child. Like, you know, I'm very <laughs> proud of you because now, of course, I'm an entrepreneur. You know? yeah. So uh, he loves the fact that I'm not sure he knows exactly what I'm doing. But he loves the fact, and I, I really believe I got it from him, you know, mm. that I, uh, as you said, it wasn't intentional, but, and that's the only thing, the only advice I give to people. If you've got an idea, be bold and courageous. Don't listen to no. And failure really isn't the end of the world. Like, seriously, it's just momentary and it passes. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that spirit helped you a lot as your forging this new field in nutrigenomics as you talked about earlier like going to conferences and things and people calling you a leper and you know the, this is never going to work out how did you continue to sell this idea and like push this field forward with all of that happening it was i mean i've made it up i've probably made it sound easier than it was it was horrible i mm. mean it was it was it was it is so hard and that's why i say no one chooses to be an entrepreneur because it's easier to have a job with a salary. Yeah. And I have spent years selling my ideas. I know that's that's the joke, you know, you're a salesman no matter what you're doing, a mm. salesperson. Like that's what you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a scientist, geneticist, you're a salesperson. And for three or four, it took me years to get funding. Years. I was and in fact I was like no one was listening to me. And I, you know, you talk to every person that you know, you call everyone you know. It's it's horrible. Like getting funding, it doesn't matter what where you are in the business. It's just horrible. And I actually had got to the point where I was ready to give up. I had tried start incubators, I tried and I had was absolutely at my wit's end and ready to give up and went to a dinner party with with them. Friends and I was miserable and grumpy. I was um, jet lagged from flying over to San Francisco to try get into an incubator. Like, and I, I'd given myself like a couple of weeks and I was done. I was mm. going to, I don't know what I was going to do. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'll always find something to do, but I was going to give up my dream of three weeks for genetics. I was done. And, and, and had done, and a friend of mine had sold his business and he had a bit of money and he was like, What are you up to these days? And I was like, you know what? It's Friday night. I'm tired. I've been pitching the whole week. I don't want to talk about it. Like, I just don't want to talk about it. And he's like, but no, really, what are you doing? Anyway, and I said, well, um, I've had this dream for a new genetics company, blah, blah, And And that was my attitude. I was like, I just want to keep my, like, dinner in peace and quiet. I'm tired. Anyway, and he was like, that sounds really amazing. And I, you know, I've got a bit of money. And, and but everyone says that to you. Everyone says I'm interested. And then nothing <laughs> yeah. happens. That's yeah. what, you know. Like you get to the eleventh hour with a hundred people, and then they pull out. Literally, that is the world of, of 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 trying to build a company. And a Monday morning, he called me and said, "Let's have coffee." 
And he told me, now that you're not so grumpy anymore, like, tell me. And I did. And within a month, he did his due diligence. And by January, he funded it wow. as an angel investor. And by May, we launched our first product. But I was absolutely, and so you look back and it all seemed like a fairy tale. But the reality is no one chooses to be an entrepreneur. It is so hard, you know, lying awake at night, trying to figure out how you're going to pay salaries, you know, and even when your company is successful, like three, four is now, you're still going from funding round to funding round because you're expanding and scaling. So, you know, it's it, it just, I don't think that I was ever, I ever chose this journey. Mm-hmm. I just feel like it chose me that I keep on pushing. I just want to do better. I want to have an impact. I want to look around. I mean, I have to say that now I'm starting to feel like I can breathe a bit and say, like, I'm having the impact that I wanted to have. But, you know, we're like 30 years in and I'm starting to go, actually, I can take a bit of time off to go swimming now. Mm. You know, not not too much, but a little bit of time to go swimming because I'm surrounded by the amazing team and amazing team who I feel like it's not all on my shoulders and that I, I can go swimming. But that has been like 30 years in the making. So I don't think, you know, I always say I'm going to retire and everyone just laughs at me. <laughs> One day I'm going to retire and they just laugh at me because I do think that you're always compelled to move forward. It's like an inertia. So I'm not sure that, again, it's it's a choice. Well, before I get to my last few questions, I'd like to leave our listeners with some action steps on some of the things we talked about today. So how should someone start, you know, running their own N of one experiments and start taking responsibility for their own health? You know, find a good genetics company. It doesn't have to be mine. Find out about who you are. Like, it's just the most beautiful thing when you when you can know what you don't know. Hmm. And you think you know yourself, right? Because But there's so many stories we tell ourselves about our health and our health journey that may not be true. So ask some tough questions. Find the best genetic testing company. Get a genetic test done. Start your journey of knowing who you are and taking responsibility. And then there's all kinds of exciting things happening with wearables, where you, some, some really exciting testing where you can go deeper. Once you start with a test and you can know what you don't know, you could start going deeper into tracking yourself with wearables. Wearing, I mean, I use a, I use a whole lot of devices, an aura ring. Hmm. I have a Garmin. I have an Apple Watch. Understanding you know, how I'm sleeping, how I'm feeling, how I'm recovering. It's, it's been the best thing for forcing me to, to take some rest. Connect with a practitioner that really gets you and understands you and hears you. And it may not be the person you think. It may not be a medical doctor. It might be a naturopath. It might be a chiropractor. It might be a health coach. Get support from coaches. They're amazing. Remember that coaches help um, with behavioral change. Mm. So they may not be the best, the best practitioners. But if you want to change your daily decision-making, Get help. I've got a health coach and I've been doing this for 20, 30 years. Mm. Like reach out and build the best team around you and start walking an amazing journey. And don't think it's ever too late. It's never too late to know who you are, how you exist in the world around you and how you can make better decisions. I think that's uh, excellent advice. Surrounding yourself with the technology, the tools and the people to you know, really build a, a team for yourself to understand yourself better. Is there anything you would like to leave listeners with today that we didn't speak about already? Wow, Brandon, we have spoken about so much. Uh, the only, <laughs> I think we've covered more than any other podcast I've covered. Um, cold water. Cold water is the most, cold water immersion is the most healing thing. 
anxiety, depression, fatigue, any, any, really anything like tired. It could be five minutes. It could be a cold shower. Really, I know we've spoken about it, but I'm just, I'm going to push it again because I don't think people really understand how powerful it is as a healing modality to even just have a hot shower and the last couple of minutes turn on mm. the cold. It is the most beautiful healing. And of course, meditation, if you can. I know we've touched on it, but I'm just going to flag it one more time. And broccoli. And broccoli. <laughs> yeah, and broccoli. All right. Well, my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve? Well, we're trying. I think the most important thing is for all of us to take responsibility for our own journey. Mm. You know, this is the way that the government and the food system set up is so patriarchal that we feel like we don't have control over how we manage our health, the food that we eat, the decisions that we make. And I think then, you know, the government health institutions are never going to solve our problems for us. Right. So, you know, we're the ones that are suffering and we're the ones, remember every single minute of every day, you are making a decision that will drive you to health or away from it. And by health, I mean mental health, physical health, overall health. And until we all take individual responsibility, we will never, ever evolve as, as, as a community. Mm -hmm. Such a powerful message. Yale, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was fantastic interview. Loved your stories and the things that you guys are doing at 3x4 Genetics. I think it's going to be powerful things for taking responsibility of our health in the future. Thanks, Brennan. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Evolve podcast. Links to everything we discussed today are available in the show notes. Transcripts are also available in the show notes. And everything can be viewed on our website at evolvethe.world. That's evolvethe.world. My one ask for you is to share this episode with others. If you know someone who is interested in social impact, social entrepreneurship, or just making a difference in the world, please share this episode with them. The challenges in our world need all of those who can contribute to existing solutions or create entirely new ones. So please share this show with those kind, intelligent people who are just like you. Until next time, my friend, keep evolving.